should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, Love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome, welcome. Happy Thursday. I almost said Tuesday. <laughs> Only because... Tuesdays are generally my favorite uh, uh, my favorite days out of the week to do this show and produce because John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is normally with us, but he hasn't been with us because he's been super busy doing something huge, huge, which I'm excited about, some upcoming news. So John is actually here with us today. John, thanks so much for swinging by. Always a pleasure to be here, Michelle. Can we announce the big news yet, or but we're still waiting? I think you should. We should, right? Right now, I think you should. <laughs> well, John has been busy launching the new home of the Commonwealth Club. The Commonwealth Club is the oldest, longest-running public affairs forum in California. In the, in the country. In the country. Yeah. Wow, yeah. I, I, you remind me that every time I say it. <laughs> um, and, uh, and a new home means that you guys have your own building now, mm -hmm. and it sits right on the Embarcadero uh, overlooking the Bay Bridge. It's gorgeous. It's beautiful. You just had your first program there, and it was the week-to-week -week political roundtable talk, and it was like fill a full room it was it was a, a great kickoff and uh, in fact michelle meow show listeners will hear it tomorrow on this show um and uh it was kind of our chance to give the the building a test out of everything you know how do how do people flow how do people like the room and everything and, and people loved it um and it's just given us a brand new home to continue doing what we've done for 114 years well, I'm excited to be a part of the 114 years. Officially, the big news that we have is that the Michelle Miao Show will uh, officially be in partnership with the Commonwealth mm -hmm. Club by producing more LGBTQ programs. So once a week, Thursday, uh, 10 o'clock in the morning, something like that, we'll announce the, the uh, official dates and times a little later. You'll, you'll, you'll be able to come and enjoy the show. If you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, it'll be in the format of a forum. John Zipper will be there to co-host and all that good stuff. So we're super, super excited. We're also excited for today's show, and that's the reason why John hopped into a cab <laughs> and uh, got his butt over here really quickly because he found out who our main guest is today and by phone. So I'm very, very excited. Let's get today's program started. Today's show is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. Our main guest today is the former mayor of Houston, and not just any former mayor of Houston, but she is the second woman ever to be elected as uh, mayor of Houston. Uh, and I should be able to say safely that probably the first lesbian mayor 
uh, but definitely one of the first openly gay mayors of a major United States city. Uh, she's now with an organization that's working very hard um, to recover from Hurricane Harvey and build community. So I thought she'd be the perfect person to talk about what to do you know, it, when we are facing natural disasters, uh, especially with an ineffective president or leader. So let's welcome Anise Parker to the program. Anise, welcome to the show. Uh, glad to be with you. Uh, happy for the invitation. I just left four weeks of actually running one of the two mega, mega shelters here in Houston, and I'm back in my office this week and glad to have a little bit quieter pace. Yeah. Um, it's, it, it, I'm glad for the quiet pace, although at the same time, you are busy working hard. And we just mentioned uh, the fact that Baker Ripley has been involved in organizing um, community around community to rebuilding after a natural disaster. So how is everything going after Hurricane Harvey? There, there's still communities in, in Houston who are hurting. There are a number of individuals who still mucking and gutting in their houses, who, who are desperately looking for new places to, to live. A lot of impact on the economy, uh, uh, businesses still not open. In, in one respect, the, the majority of Houston is, is, is fine, uh, that uh, they didn't have direct storm damage. But looked at another way, the entire region is going to be hurt by the fact that we've lost so much of our particularly low-income housing stock and a lot of the service industry jobs were, were put on hold for weeks, and, and that works its way through the economy. I remember uh, reporting in, in uh, New Orleans after Katrina and, and uh, meeting a lot of the folks on the ground there, and it took a long time for people to come back to the city. Now, I, th- there was a, granted, a different situation there, but still, you know, a city hit with, with massive flooding. Um, are mo- do you think have most people returned to Houston who had left, or are there still like neighborhoods you go through that are dark and, and un- unoccupied? No, no, no. Uh, uh, folks, folks are here. Folks are back. It's mm-hmm. a, it's a different type of situation than uh, uh, post Katrina New Orleans, and and you also have to understand the 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 mass of of Houston. We're we're a vast sprawling urban region, so. While there are there are neighborhoods that were really severely impacted, the you know, majority of the city had uh, no damage and or very little direct impact, and folks didn't evacuate uh, by and large to other places. They they moved out of the high water areas and, and, and sheltered until they could come back. Although there were some shelters opened in places like San Antonio and, and Dallas and Austin, they had a you know a few hundred people each. I have to ask you, obviously, one of the, the big stories that was going around about someone who was deemed to be kind of tardy to let people in was, of course, uh, Joel Osteen there in, in, in Houston. Do, do you have any take on, on that? Word? I think he got, a, a, unfortunately, a bad rap, and I don't, I don't think it was I don't think it was fair. Uh, not every church, because it happens to be a large church, is an appropriate place to open up a shelter. When you're in the midst of a storm, you're looking for any place that can get you out of the water. Mm-hmm. And as the as the water begins to either to rise and you're fleeing it or, or you get to you know high ground, different pockets of, of high ground. But 
one of the things we had to do after the, the mega shelters were opened was to go back to these places like Lakewood and, and smaller church shelters and empty them out because while the, the shelter gets people out of the, the floodwaters and gets them a roof over their head, they have no access to the recovery resources, no access to particularly things like unmet medical needs. Mm-hmm. And from a government perspective, you don't know they're there. Yeah. And so it's hard to mobilize resources. I actually visited the, the, the shelter that uh, Lakewood uh, operated, and the uh, residents, the, the Houstonians who, who stayed at Lakewood, evacuated ultimately to our mega shelter as we began to close down all the other shelters. So I'm very familiar with what they did. They, I think they did their best under trying circumstances, and uh, no one should be criticized for either a delay or what they did after they set it up. Michelle Miao and John Zipper of Progressive Voices Network. We are speaking to Anise Parker, who's the former mayor of Houston, but also now working very, very hard in uh, recovery, recovery for folks out in Houston and Texas who have been affected by Hurricane Harvey. Um, Anise, now I want to I want to talk about you know as far as like responses goes, we've we've got to talk about the president and his responses, especially to natural disasters lately. Um, his Twitter handle definitely would say that he's doing A pluses <laughs> all across the board when it comes to responses to relief. What is your take on it, especially with distractions from those who had made headlines? And I'm embarrassed to even bring it up, but someone like Ann Coulter who blamed you know hurricanes on lesbians and things like this um oh, i'd no, love to I hear a, your I thoughts i had a lot of fun i had a lot of fun <laughs> with, uh, with ann Coulter. i mean you don't you don't try to argue logically with stupid you just run with it and, <laughs> and uh, i have fun on twitter with uh, with her, the stupid remarks but you know every time there's a big natural disaster some right-wing nutball comes out and says oh this is because we've turned away from god or uh, lgbt right this or that and and that's why we have uh storms and it's just Okay, you just have to ignore that. In terms of the president, do I? Do I don't, I'm not going to give him an F. I think they that there are certain folks within his administration who are who are trying to do the right thing. But uh, he, I don't. You know, I think maybe he gets a D. And and I would give the same to the the, the governor of Texas. Both as public officials, they were they were late in their response. The response was. It's picked up, but initially inadequate. The fact that the governor of Texas doesn't want to tap the rainy day fund. The city of Houston, the greater Houston area, over a three or four day period had 52 inches of rain. If that's not a rainy day, the, the, the highest rainfall total in American history, I don't know what a rainy day is. And so we had a, you know, not an abject failure of government, but certainly they had to be forced to, to step up and, and do the right thing. The, the agency I work for, Baker Ripley, is we're a 110-year-old organization, and we came out of the, the Settlement House movement. So what we normally do is we work with immigrants and refugees, help them get uh, you know, oriented to America. We run charter schools. We run community centers. We do workforce programs. And so we're on the, that social service lifeline. Well, as in, the, in the aftermath of a major disaster like Harvey, all of those support networks are that, that were barely adequate before become severely strained or, or disappear. 
And it's going to take a lot of us working together to bring our community back. You know, during the the actual emergency and for a couple of week af- weeks afterwards, for example, ICE didn't do raids in in uh, Latino neighborhoods here in Houston looking for our, our undocumented residents. That's great. But now they've started again, and just as we're beginning to, to, to crawl out of of our, you know, storm damages and really begin to start pick up the pace toward recovery, they're fully back undermining all of the good work that, that we're doing in community to get everybody working together on recovery instead of uh, trying to um, hide from immigration, for example. Do you think the response to Houston from the federal government, was it any better than what we're seeing it uh, do or not do in Puerto Rico? Uh, absolutely. The I think actually I don't know that you know. Let me back up. The, the president actually visited uh, NRG shelter where uh, I was one of the co-shelter managers. Mm-hmm. So we we had a visitation from 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 President Trump himself. It is a lot harder to organize response across all that water between us and Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. But I think that a lot of folks in the administration really weren't thinking about the fact that. That a that someone who lives in Puerto Rico is a, an American citizen, and that they deserve the full resources of America deployed to help them recover just recover just as the Greater Houston area and uh, the Texas Gulf Coast and and Florida did, and I, they were really late to respond. And instead of what what happened here, it wasn't the federal government that that got us through the storm, and, and actually that's not intended as a slam, certain types of storms, you can't have folks from Washington or from the state capitol coming in to help you. They can't get there. Yeah. So when for, our, you know, for Harvey, it was, as we like to say, the Cajun Navy. Our friends in Louisiana came with their bass boats and their, uh, you know, their pulled-behind pickup trucks and started mm-hmm. pulling people out of the water. We did it ourselves. And Florida, a lot of that's happening as well. And then the federal resources come in behind. Well, in, in Puerto Rico, they don't have the assets. They don't have the resources to begin with. And when the, when the electrical grid has gone down and, uh, and there's no way to get new uh, you know, gasoline supplies there, it requires an order of magnitude greater response. Anise, we're going to take a quick short break, but I'd love for you to hang out just a a little bit longer. I have some questions, especially about your service as mayor of Houston and being uh, a leader as far as being one of the most successful politicians in American history. Can you hang out a bit? Sure. Don't go away. We'll be right back with more on The Michelle Miao Show. The Commonwealth Club of California is the nation's leading public forum engaged with the most important issues of the day. More than 450 times each year, we feature programs on politics, LGBT issues, literature, science, entertainment, and more. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Google Play. Watch our videos on YouTube and Facebook. And when you're in the Bay Area, join us in person for our daily programs. Learn more about the club at commonwealthclub.org. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. 
so where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side as a unified team of the best fertility specialists guided by the highest ethical standards Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Michelle Meow Show. I'm Michelle Meow, your host. John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is here with us. And our special guest on the phone is Anise Parker, who is the 61st uh, mayor of Houston, the one of the first uh, out elected LGBTQ mayors uh, from a big city in that city is of Houston. So we're very lucky to have Anise on the phone. I actually had spent a lot of, lot of time wishing and hoping to speak to Anise. <laughs> so it's like a, it's like a bucket list thing down and um, I'm so excited. So I have to ask about, you know, your time and your service as mayor of Houston and what that was like and being, um, you know, uh, defined as one of the first out elected uh, LGBTQ mayors in the entire country? Well, being a, the mayor of my hometown was the absolute honor of my life. And being a big city mayor is the best political job in America. Uh, Houston's the fourth largest city in, in America. And while I was the first uh, openly LGBT mayor of a top 10 U.S. city, I was only the 10th woman to lead a top 10 U.S. city. So there's still a lot of, of glass ceilings out there that, that, we're, that we butt up against. Uh, I enjoyed my time as mayor. I uh, came to it after uh, actually spent 18 years full-time in public life because I was an elected council member and then an elected controller before I was elected mayor. And when I was elected, it made worldwide news. Uh, and, it, and it was a combination of a lesbian elected mayor of Houston or a lesbian elected mayor of Houston. People can believe <laughs> right, it, right. and, and Houston is not it, not the city that, that people think it is. It is it is a conservative place. It's home of the oil industry. It's in Texas, but it's a big international city. One in four Houstonians is foreign born, and uh, it's it's a place where, in fact, the majority of people who live here started life somewhere else. And and when you're from somewhere else and you and you come to a new city. You tend to be a lot more tolerant and welcoming uh, to others, and and people don't get that. 
I, I, I think my realization that, that Houston was not what I thought it was was when I first heard that you were elected mayor. Uh, later, I was reading some other completely unrelated article years later, and uh, Dallas has a Democratic mayor. Am I correct? All of the big cities in Texas are big blue islands in the toxic red sea that is Texas. <laughs> well, and, and is that a growing trend? I mean, where's the, I guess what I'm getting at is the whole, you know, is Texas itself always going to be overall a, a red state, or do you see change there from whether it's demographics or growing, the big cities growing in their power? The, the cities are, as I said, that we're, we're big blue islands mm-hmm. and with, with strong democratic majorities, but... Texas is a huge state, and very conservative rural areas and and and, and conservative suburbs around uh, the the big blue cities have kept us in the um, you know in the conservative column for the last twenty years. And I I believe a combination of things is going to happen. One that the that the uh, the strength of the cities is going to to grow. That and the we're going to start fielding progressive candidates for statewide offices who have a track record in the cities. But I also believe that the Republican leadership in our state is becoming so uh, dominated by the, the Tea Party and, and so far from uh, from center that uh, the combination they're going to they're going to start driving the train off the cliff, and then and the the Democrats will uh, will begin to get our act together. And I think absolutely in the near term that the, the state will, will shift. Maybe not to be, a, a Texan is not going to, a Democratic Texas is not, Texan is not going to look like one in California or the Northeast. We tend to be a little more conservative mm-hmm. in general, and issues like gun control and gun rights uh, are differently handled here than other places, but we'll definitely be a purple state, and, and I think we're going to turn, turn blue. Uh- I just have to ask, so now you're teaching at Rice University, is that correct? In addition to the work I do at the, the nonprofit, I, I teach right. one class a semester at Rice in the political science department. Okay. Do you, are you done with politics, or would you return to it? I I still have politics in my blood. I mm-hmm. still think it's the, the way to make the most progress on, on the issues that I care deeply about. But politics is also about uh, timing and opportunity. Sure. There has to be the, the right seat, and you have to be in the right place in, in your life. Right now, I'm excited to be working with an agency that, that's working on issues of immigration, because I think that's the big civil rights issue mm-hmm. of our current time. Uh, but uh, hopefully there's more politics in my future. I just haven't laid out a plan yet. Well, hopefully, I mean, for someone like myself, we're talking about Texas, but if we pull back and we apply that to the entire country and what we're going through politically, um, I wanted to ask you, I mean, you know, with appointments like Neil Gorsuch to uh, a uh, Supreme Court seat and the potential of other appointees that, you know, there's a lot of LGBTQ scholars and politicians out there who are talking about the possible regression of LGBTQ rights, something like marriage equality. I wanted to ask you, you know, kind of what you you think, if if it's possible, um, how we should be guarded and uh, be ready. Um, And obviously, you know, staying in politics is is a good way to continue fighting. I think that the future is inevitable on LGBT rights. I started as an activist in the 70s. The first 
LGBT organizing event I attended was in 1975. So I've been doing this a very long time. I wasn't a, a candidate for, for, for mayor who happened to be gay. I was, a, I was a lesbian activist in the 70s and 80s, and it was part of what I brought to the to the office. So I, I take the long view on this. We have we're, we're going to win this war. We're going to win it demographically. We're going to win it. We've already we are winning it in in hearts and minds across America. That doesn't mean we won't have setbacks and and lose battles. And we have to be willing to uh, to speak up about uh, and and to really stand up for ourselves when candidates like like uh, Donald Trump uh, try to. Well, I'm going to stop and say, I, while I do know there are some gay people who voted for him, and I hope they never have sex for the rest of their lives, because uh, <laughs> they don't deserve to be part of the gay community anymore, uh, we have to we have to advocate, and we have to we have to organize as a community. And the, the the tool that has brought us thus far is voting being involved in the political process and working the court system. And, and we all have a responsibility to be engaged in that form of civic life. And every LGBT person in America needs to support LGBT uh, organizations, rights organizations, whether either their dollars or their time, that we've made a lot of gains, but we could step back. And we can't just all decide that we're going to... Uh, we haven't made now. We don't have to worry any longer. The election of Donald Trump shows otherwise. Uh, let me give you kind of a worldwide palette or, or a canvas here. Um, the, I believe the uh, prime minister of, is it Serbia, uh, is a lesbian ultimately. Uh, the prime minister. I don't know, but the president of Iceland was for a while. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, and the prime minister or Taosic of uh, Ireland is an openly gay man. Um, it, it, I think we're, it, we're, we can hopefully see within our lifetimes a, a time when, you know, we won't be going through this wave of the first openly gay or first openly lesbian or first openly uh, transgender person who hold a certain political position because it, it will have happened in so many places. And I think that will be something, uh, well, I think a lot of them will be certainly in, in, in your footsteps and in your debt, but uh, that'll be a wonderful thing. A milestone means, means that you haven't reached the end of the journey. Yeah. As long as you're counting milestones, you still have a ways to go. But I really have seen the, the future in young people across America, and not just millennials, but the, the generation the, after that. The, the kids who are in middle school and high school. And, and, well, let me, let's, let's make a distinction between where we are in America on uh, lesbian and gay rights mm-hmm. And where we are on transgender issues, mm-hmm. because we are much, much farther along in in terms of full acceptance on uh, for the lesbian gay community than the transgender community, and we we we're seeing that in places like Texas with our uh, and North Carolina with the bathroom bills, and the it it would be hard for I think anyone in America to say they don't know someone who is gay. But it's still too hard for people in America to, to, to really understand the, the daily lives of our transgender brothers and sisters. And that as long as they are invisible, they can be made other mm-hmm. and they can be attacked. And the, the 
it has to be an LGBT community. We have to recognize that we're all in this together. But we also have to allow our transgender brothers and sisters to get out in front and advocate for themselves and to become visible and to become part of the daily life of America, which is what the lesbian and gay leaders have been doing for decades. And that's the only thing that's really ultimately going to win us our rights is that people have to know us and love us and and recognize us as part of the, the fabric of America. Anissa, I want to thank you so much for joining us here on the program, for your service, for your continued leadership, um, and for giving me the opportunity to cross off something off my bucket list. (laughs) (laughs) Happy to do it. Uh, Call me anytime. All right. Well, you got it. You got us, at least, for, you know, Anise Parker for something in the future, whatever it is. Governor. (laughs) I've looked at it. Someday, maybe. (laughs) Thank you so much. Don't go away. When we come back, we'll speak to Esther Lee, who is the author of an article that was posted at thinkprogress.org, and it's a discussion about Homeland Security and how they want your social media handle now. So don't go away. The Commonwealth Club is a unique organization that brings together people from a variety of backgrounds to explore important issues as a community. Sooner or later, everyone worth hearing comes to our stage. From Marga Gomez to Richard Chamberlain, from James Hormel to Kate Kendall, leading thinkers, activists, politicians, and artists have come to the Commonwealth Club of California. Ted Olson and David Boyes came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage. Jason Collins talked about gay athletes. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. From healthcare reform to transgender rights, from immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club. And that's still just a portion of the 450 programs we present every single year, with new programming nearly every single day. Be a part of the conversation. Learn more at commonwealthclub.org, download our free app in iTunes, and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face with today's thought leaders. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side as a unified team of the best fertility specialists guided by the highest ethical standards Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thank you so much for joining me here on this Thursday, September 28th. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is here with us. We just finished speaking to Anise Parker. Oh, man, I can't tell. I mean, I tried talking to her when she got elected, and Mm -hmm. she was just so busy. uh, We couldn't get her on the show, but I'm so happy that we did. 
And I'm happy to hear that she's considering, you know, staying in the political spotlight. I was too, and that she actually answered the question. Because a lot of, you know, it's often said, you know, everyone who's running for office will always say, oh, I'm not interested in that. Right. Um, And she was very straightforward. I I can see why Houstonians liked her. She's she's direct. She's smart. She's uh, she says what she thinks. I mean, that's absolutely. Maybe I'll move to Houston. (laughs) Maybe I like it here in San Francisco, especially with what we're going to do at the Commonwealth Club. So more to come. We'll announce more. But let's get the second half of our show started. The other day, I was reading an article on Think Progress, and the headlines grabbed my attention. It was something about Homeland Security now wanting to monitor uh, immigrants and citizens and naturalized citizens. They want to monitor the, their social media accounts. So I read the article to my wife, who is an immigrant, and she just moved here from Thailand. Um, so her, her response to me sharing that article was, so they want to know what I like to eat? <laughs> That's all she posts are like uh, pictures of food. But obviously we know that it's a lot more than that. It and is, it so is pictures of cats, <laughs> videos of dogs doing silly things. Well, I'm not worried about her social media handle, but I might be worried about mine once they find out that she's my wife. <laughs> so, uh, of course, naturally, then that means um, I, I have a lot of questions. So we have Esther Lee, who's with Think Progress and who's the author of that article here with us and on the phone. Esther, thank you so much for taking time to speak with us. And thank you so much for having me. And, you know, I got to say, I also have a bunch of uh, cat pictures on the <laughs> Internet for DHS to figure out. And they're going to have a, a ball day with that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, what I, what I enjoyed most about reading your article is just uh, the fact that you, you know, you answered some of these questions of what is what is the goal? So what would be, you know, the goal of, of Homeland Security to want to monitor our social media handles? So by uh, DHS's own admission, they're saying that they're doing, they are collecting the information to social media accounts of immigrants and green card holders and nationalized citizens because they're trying to streamline the entire immigration re- uh, record-keeping process. And that they also said that this is, you know, they're just reiterating existing DHS policy. Um, in particular, they're updating their pri- the Privacy Act of 1974. And, you know, like... We could believe that, or we could also believe that um, they are trying to take the social media information because they're out, they're doing it out of uh, national security concerns. Um, and a lot of this is really rooted in the fact that, like, and back in December of 2015, we had a really horrific um, and very tragic terrorist attack in San Bernardino, California, um, in which you know one of both of the terrorists use social media to communicate their love for violent jihad. And um, because of that, because of many other instances, um, you know, DHS has decided that they will start monitoring social media accounts of immigrants. You know, a while ago we, on this program, we interviewed a a man who was an American who was returning to the United States from uh, some time overseas where I think he'd either been attending school or working, I think, in the UK. But he had gone through Canada, was driving back and was stopped and, and basically harangued by a border guard who was just, you know, going on and on and on about all kinds of uh, Trumpian sort of political stuff. And, you know, well, do you believe that? Do you agree with this? Um, I mean, that's, that's kind of the nightmare I imagine that, that uh, a lot of uh, these immigrants and, and naturalized citizens and others would be, you know, potentially worried about is like, 
Oh, you know, I posted something, uh, you know, I, I liked a, a photo that uh, had showed Donald Trump's hair blowing in the wind or something like that. I mean, there's certainly a lot of concern about mm-hmm. privacy and especially about freedom of speech. You know, a lot of immigrants come to this country for the freedoms that are provided in the First Amendment. And not being able to criticize the president or even, you know, the government or even just like, you know, your favorite dish at, at a local Thai restaurant, you know, like that is. I, I think that that goes against our our rights to come to this country um, as immigrants and and to naturalize. And I think that there's something very scary in the fact that like the USCIS, which is the United States Citizenship and Immigration Services, um, that's the agency that you know oversees citizenship and naturalization and like uh, what you guys have been hearing in the news with like DACA. Mm-hmm. You know that agency has actually for this even predates like this uh, this policy that we've heard about this week, you know, like they've been collecting data for a very long time. And DHS has also been collecting data since like 2012. It's just that they, this most recent update is something that is like really capturing our minds right now because it's under a different president. And it's under a different administration of um, a president who has said that he would take a very hard line against immigrants. And he's acted on it, right? We've seen the refugee bans. We've, we've seen... Um, the immigration cuts, um, and we've seen how some of his anti-immigrant policies have really hurt Americans as well as immigrants. So that's why I think this is so scary now uh, versus when the Obama administration had it back in 2012. But it's kind of a, I mean, that's a great point because that's kind of a good reminder that when these policies do come out, and maybe it's what the president we, we like, um, to always think in our mind, okay, what happens when the next president is George W. Bush, is Donald Trump, is Ted Cruz, or whatever? You should post more photos of steak and potatoes and, and how much you like that. Oh, no. yeah, yeah, my, and my gun collection. <laughs> Your gun collection, that's right. No, I've, been, but, I've been advised to do that. So I'm actually an immigrant myself, and mm-hmm. I was advised by a lot of friends, jokingly, of course, but like they were like, you should start posting pictures of the American flag and you know, just to prove and to show how much you love America. And I was like, I'm already very American in the ways that I <laughs> act and in the ways that I eat, right? You know, so, like, um, it's, it's, I think that's been a little silly to have to monitor social media accounts, given that even the DHS itself, the Office of, of the Inspector General, they've admitted that monitoring social media accounts isn't necessarily helpful, um, mm-hmm. and it doesn't actually do anything to deter terrorism. You know, a lot of the people that we've seen in recent uh, attacks on the U.S., um, of the ones who were foreigners, we don't necessarily know how and why they they do such terrible crimes, but we certainly won't be able to, like, know these things from their Facebook posts, right? Right, and, and I assume this is working on kind of a robot manner. I mean, they're, they're collecting all this info. They don't have... You know, people sitting at an infinite number of desks watching everyone's Facebook and Twitter and Google Plus feeds and all that kind of stuff. But no, it's kind of big. <laughs> good job creation. Um, but so I mean, it's kind of like so they have that information when they do want to go in and investigate someone or they have a reason to. Is that what they're kind of saying is that they've got it then? I, I think that that was the rationale that they were going for, especially after, um, again, the terrorist attack in 2015. You know, they were saying that because she pronounced uh, this, one of the terrorists pronounced her love for violent jihad on um, a social media platform that, 
you know, that was private, you know, like because she did that, we now have to scrutinize everybody's social media accounts. And I don't think that necessarily is the best way. Um, and it, it's certainly not something that like would be very effective if we were to look at everybody's social media accounts, you know, like what are we going to say about the person who posts something like, I'm so angry at the president today for X, Y, Z, right? Mm -hmm. Is that going to be taken as a threat? I would really mm -hmm. hope not. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, who's not talking about Donald Trump these days on social media? But, uh, but Esther, I have a question about, you know, just how they're going to streamline this and the process and what rights we have. We talked a little bit about the infringement of privacy. Um, I mean, I know that in the article it said this is all voluntary as far as, like, giving them the information, your social media handles. But, but, but there comes that uh, fear that if you don't give them what they want, that your application could be delayed if, didn't, you know, the worst-case scenario, denied. Uh, over this, what are what are your thoughts, or what information do you have as far as um, immigrants and our rights, and you know, can they actually even do this? You know, one of the most profound things I found under the Trump administration is that immigrants are told they don't have rights, and that's just not true. And if you look at what's happened in the past, at you know the TSA line after the refugee ban, or at the border, as earlier was alluded. You know, a lot of these people just simply don't know that they do have the rights to say, no, I don't want to be searched or no, I don't want to give out my information. But then they are detained for a prolonged period of time until they give up that information. So, yes, it's in theory voluntary for you to give up your social media account. But in practice, you will be detained longer than you should be if you don't abide by uh, what a, a government worker tells you to do. Are there any lawsuits that have been filed or that you know of are, are being considered being filed about this? I'm actually not familiar with that point, but I would not be surprised given how this infringes on uh, the right to privacy and, and freedom of uh, speech. I would not be surprised. Mm -hmm. um, what, what, how central of a part is DHS saying, or you know, I guess how important are they saying this is as, as a part of all of these changes that have been made about uh, immigrants over the past year or so. I mean, is are they saying, look, this is crucial, or are they saying, you know, it kind of sounds like from what you were saying before, they're saying, well, this is kind of what we've been doing, and now we're just kind of formalizing it a bit. I think that they are trying to find any way to legitimize being able to track you, uh, track your whole history as an immigrant, mm -hmm. no matter how small and I would say petty it seems they, they think that that's the way to make America feel safe about immigrants, right? So, like, social media accounts may not necessarily be able to portend a person's future ability to, to have an, a terrorist attack on the U.S. But, you know, there are a lot of other indicators that we can look to. And, you know, the DHS does take a lot of information. When you're applying as an immigrant to this country, you do give out a lot of information. You give biometrics. You have to go undergo so many background checks with various federal agencies. Um, and you know, I remember when I was applying for um, my green card. I'm sorry to bring it back to me, but you know, I had to give like a medical exam and, and mm -hmm. get a million shots, right? So like, it's a very thorough process in order to become an immigrant to this country. And you know, if you were a terrorist, you wouldn't go through all these necessary hurdles just to inflict such pain on Americans. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. I, I, I certainly wouldn't yeah. want to be out in the open and be like, hey, this is what I'm planning on doing, right? right. Like, right. I have to, as a terrorist, that's what you don't do. My, my wife's going through the process. My wife and I are going through the process right now, and uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, I'm... <laughs> I'm not. I'm not afraid of her. I'm more afraid of like myself. I mean, you know, just right. my, yeah. my my trail of uh, of being an American here and everything from a parking ticket to <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I don't know skipping classes in high school. Like <laughs> will probably be brought up, but I know we're joking a little bit about it. But it, it's a very serious fear. I think that you know what's going on here is uh, it's a lot of fear mongering. It's making people afraid. It's it's definitely xenophobic and in in some ways racist as far as like practices and and it's selective that's what it is and it's making the these officials become discretionary in their decision making of who gets to stay and who gets to go exactly exactly that and it's also magnified a lot of the fear is magnified because we have president trump in office um, and although he has said in the past, you know, I have a big heart for <laughs> some dreamers, you know, the, the kids who were brought to this country as children, and I, I think that there are good ones in the mix of bad ones, right? You know, even though he said things like that, his actions have spoken louder than his words, and his actions have been anti-immigrant policies, and he's been very hostile to immigrants, uh, legal and undocumented, and, you know, he set a cap for refugees, he set a cap for illegal immigrants, for dreamers who he said he had a big heart for, he has taken away DACA. You know, it's a lifeline for a lot of people. And so a lot of his actions don't match with his words. And that's why, you know, when when we report as the media that DHS is going to start tracking the social media accounts of immigrants, that's why it's so scary, because he's done so many other things that this now sounds really scary, as opposed to when this was first announced in 2012. And I, I would think a fair number of folks are coming from other countries where this would not be surprising. In fact, I was reading this morning on the way in, um, you know, a man in Thailand who was uh, arrested because he had liked a photo on Facebook that showed the their new king um, shopping, and he was dressed informally, and that was considered, you know, to be insulting the king. Um, you know, I mean, it, it's not outrageous that that. I mean, it is outrageous, but I mean, it's, it's not outrageous for them to think that, okay, apparently that's how the things are done in this country, too, and I thought I was escaping that. Exactly. And at what point do we become that kind of a, you know, that kind mm-hmm. of country, or we stick by our principles as an America and have freedom of speech, freedom of religion? You know, this is why people come to this country, right, for those freedoms, and they want to fight and and abide by those freedoms. And in order to do so, they do give everything that they have, their social media accounts, their biometrics, their their weight and their height, you know, everything, just so they can become a part of America. Um, Esther, I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to speak to us here on the Progressive Voices Network. My last question for you is, uh, you know, what, what, what words of advice maybe, if you have any, for immigrants, naturalized citizens, everybody, citizens, anybody who interacts with immigrants and naturalized <laughs> citizens on, on this? I mean, you know, is there action to take? Do we start curbing um, our social media, which limits our right to the freedom of speech? And, of course, this is your opinion and your opinion only. You know, I'm so torn on this, but if I were telling my friends this, I would, I would, let me tell you the same thing I would tell my friends, which is, you know, monitor what you say before you put it out there and act as though it would come out in a subpoena <laughs> in a court deposition one day, uh, whatever you say. 
So, you know, if you can't say it in person to somebody, don't say it at all. USA, USA, USA. <laughs> Boy, I'm and so yeah, proud. Have America emojis everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Esther, thank you so much for all that you do. Thank you very much for having me on your show. You can follow Esther's work by going to Think Progress or following Think Progress, and uh, she's available on Facebook and Twitter. We're going to take a quick short break. When we come back, some final thoughts from John and I. Don't go away. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. The Commonwealth Club of California is the nation's leading public forum engaged with the most important issues of the day. More than 450 times each year, we feature programs on politics, LGBT issues, literature, science, entertainment, and more. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Google Play, watch our videos on YouTube and Facebook, and when you're in the Bay Area, join us in person for our daily programs. Learn more about the club at commonwealthclub.org. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side as a unified team of the best fertility specialists guided by the highest ethical standards Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. Many nonprofits rely on events to raise money, create space for community gathering, and offer opportunities to network. But how many hours in a day do community leaders have when they're busy changing the world? Imagine your next event, gala, festival, or celebration professionally executed with creative ideas and ideals to match your community service. IDK is the community's trusted event production company. Visit idkevents.com for all your event production needs. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thank you so much for joining us here on this Thursday. I'm Michelle Meow, your host. The Michelle Meow Show is your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is here with us once a week to co-host, but... I think that might change maybe in the near future. Maybe we'll add a a couple more shows if John is up to it. Um, The opportunity is absolutely there, especially because our weekly co-hosting gig now moves over to the Commonwealth Club, where we'll be doing our shows uh, pretty much live, and we'll have interaction from guests who can come to the Commonwealth Club to ask questions, be there with us. So the space is now located Uh, right in between Boulevard, the famous restaurant that Jay-Z and Beyonce dined at when she was on tour. (laughs) No, it's it's That's why we built our building there, of course. (laughs) It's much more well-known than that. And it was, was, uh, you know, nestled between Boulevard and Chaya, but Chaya is now closed down, and I was there for the very last day and bought some sake shot glasses that my wife accidentally dropped and we had to, we, we broke it, we bought it. <laughs> um, but yeah, so the exact address? 
110 the Embarcadero. We're right on the waterfront, uh, right near the ferry building. So it's easy to get to. And all of you will have your chance to actually come and sit in the audience and meet Michelle. Because I know she's got a lot of fans in the area. <laughs> I love meeting fans. You know, I, I actually love meeting fans around my neighborhood. Um, it, part of me is like, oh, you know, do I want to tell people that I live in this neighborhood? But then it's like, <laughs> it's not like you're even, you know, at uh, uh, famous newscaster level. So you're fine. Like a local <laughs> news. Like I, I would think that um, the woman that you do a lot of your programs with from CBS. Oh, Melissa King. Yeah, I would think people try to stalk her more than, you know, they would try to stalk me. Um, hopefully no one gets stalked. Hopefully nobody gets stalked. You're right. Anyway, so follow us. We'll definitely update. We, we're planning a couple things, maybe a party, a launch party or something like that. So stay in touch. You can find me at Facebook. Today was a great show. Uh, man, I'm fired up. And these are the types of discussions that we should be having with one another. One, I think that it provides some comfort that, you know, you're not alone in feeling these feelings of fear. And two, um, we learn from each other and we learn who has your back. So someone like Anise Parker, you know, who was the mayor of Houston, who was extremely successful and served multiple terms, continues to be interested to want to serve in a, in a political capacity, but also doing a lot to build community after a natural disaster. Mm -hmm. So lots of people aren't going to look at her as if she is the first lesbian mayor of Houston, but they're going to look at her as Anise Parker, who did a whole lot for Houstonians. They certainly will. And as I recall, she was a popular mayor. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I was also pleased to hear her say, you know, cause a lot of folks who are LGBTQ who get in a position of power, they'll say, oh, well, I'm not a gay mayor or a gay governor. Mm -hmm. I'm a governor who happens to be gay. And she's like, no, I, I was <laughs> I was a, an activist back in the 70s. I was a gay right. activist, lesbian activist, and, and I got into power. And so, you know, good for her. And, and I think we'll see more of that again as we we get past these initial milestones. Um, we, man, there are some bright people out there on our side. Yeah. Well, I, I bring that up. Um, I'm glad that she stands up mm -hmm. and uh, wholeheartedly accepts that identity of hers. But I bring that up in, you know, a, a, uh, a place where we're, we're starving for some um, bipartisan work, you know, in our political framework here, mm -hmm. right? And right now it just feels like there's this authoritative voice in whatever executive order he wants to put out there. He's just creating chaos. Um, and then the some Republican uh, legislators are are weak, weak to stand up to what they know is not right for our country and trying to, you know, brown nose him or what, whatever they're doing. And, and, they're, and none of them, right, are even safe from the, his crosshairs, like, uh, as far as, like, his criticisms and, and yeah, right. yeah, Mitch McConnell is constantly targeted by him. And now McCain, I, I just read uh, in the news that he was uh, taunting, yeah, you know, his, his, his tumor. Yeah, so, that's so crazy. But you know what? Yes, they they he he has this uh, bully pulpit, and for the first time, he really is a bully behind the pulpit. But he's also, I think, he is kind of creating maybe an incipient uh, uh, bipartisanship. You know, John McCain when he came back after you know his first. It was revealed that it was brain cancer. He made a speech specifically saying, no, we need to return to regular rules of order. We need to work together across the party. You know? And then again, and most recently when he voted down, uh, or it was one of the pivotal votes in, in rejecting another Obamacare repeal, he said, no, let's 
do this with both parties. I mean, that's what we're supposed to be doing here. That let's let's get let's stop this incredible hyper partisanship. And uh, you know, his message to that was mostly to his own party. He wasn't, mm-hmm. you know, he wasn't telling Diane Feinstein, Diane Feinstein, <laughs> you need to start working with Republicans. She'll work with Republicans, right? You know, so I think his th- we're seeing some already some of Trump's uh, uh, attitude and approach rebounding against him because you know, and and there are reports increasingly within the House of Representatives too of the so-called moderate wing mm-hmm. of granted mm-hmm. a, a quite a conservative party but mm-hmm. they are starting to band together and kind of just dig their heels in just like the tea party used to do mm-hmm. well thank you so much everyone for joining us here on the program i hope you like what we do and the kind of interviews that we do so definitely stay in touch we're here monday through friday four o'clock pacific standard time you can catch john's show uh, fridays here on the michelle meow show he does his own week-to-week political roundtable talk and stay tuned for some great great programming i think next week we'll talk about uh, oakland pd with peter nix a bay area documentarian who followed uh, oakland pd in 2014 2015 all throughout the scandals that happened wow. um yeah so yeah, very you, insightful you could make a showtime series about the oakland PD. <laughs> and we'll also speak to um uh, another documentarian who who did a film uh, about the Japanese incarceration uh, camps and um, and and many of the people that she interviewed also were kids, babies, you know, who were just born in the incarceration uh, camps and um, internment camps, I should say. So it'll give you some insight as to you know, kind of what's happening and this redefinition or redefining of immigration, who belongs here. Um, so stay tuned for all of that, or you could head to michellemeow.com. I'm Heclina. I've been doing drag here in San Francisco for almost 20 years. And uh, over the past couple of months, I just opened up my club, Oasis. It's been going really well. People really seem to appreciate the space. It's something people say San Francisco really needs right now, because the city has been changing a lot. I always had this attitude of, of opening a space that was kind of like for everybody, and that's just kind of the attitude and the the, uh, the ethics of Oasis, is it's kind of a space for everybody. How does it feel to be a business owner? I don't know, you know, it's funny because I still need, I still have to kind of pinch myself to believe it's actually true, you know what I mean? Like I walk in there and, and I go up to the bar and I go, oh, can I please have a glass of water? You know, it's kind of like, I forget that it's my place. Running gay clubs, it's changed a lot. Um, I think that gay people now, they're everywhere. They don't feel like they have to maybe be in a gay bar all the time. So you have to be much more creative about how you are enticing people to come out to your club. I I guess I'm successful because I'll just say it, I work really hard at what I do. I also like to provide a really quality experience for people. So yes, you know, people will pay to see my shows and pay to come to my club, but I always like like to give them something that's worth it. The experience that they'll they'll leave my shows going, okay, that was worth it, you know what I mean? This has always been my attitude, um, just to entertain people. And so it seems like that works, you know. I would say to young kids, you know, just kind of form your own identity. And, uh, and, you know, don't let others dictate how you should behave or think. Uh, you can always go to uh, sfoasis.com to find out about all the entertainment and nightlife that we have going on at Oasis. If you want to see drag, we've got that for you. If you want to see some queer hip-hop parties or queer dance parties, we have that for you. Spotlight on success and achievement. Brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together we'll go far. 
Thanks so much for tuning in today. For more on us and other programs or podcasts you might have missed, you can head to michellemeow.com.